This week on the Pressure Cast, Nintendo, Sony, and Microsoft release their annual earnings reports. Find out exactly how the console war is going. It's Monday, May 1st, 2017. Everything happening in the world of video games is here, now on the Pressure Cast. Pressure Pals, welcome to the 179th episode of the Pressure Cast. Video games are dumb.com's weekly news panic that posts every single Monday on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, TuneIn Radio, Google Play Music, and America's longest running independent newspaper at shepherdexpress.com. My name is Colin Tanner, and I'm caffeinated and ready to ramble to you about some goddamn video games. But in case you never listened to the Pressure Cast before, it's easy. Each week, the Pressure Cast slices up the latest video game news, past, present, and future, and plays Places them into several sensational segments and jams it right in your ears in two hours or less. If you want to contact the Pressure Cast, you can email pressurecast at gmail.com. You can text or call 954 947 7377, or you can even tweet at VGA Dumb on Twitter. If you didn't catch all that, don't worry. All of those links are available in the description of your podcast app or this YouTube age. age? YouTube page, not age. This YouTube age. Where you can just look up email addresses. It's amazing, isn't it? We're living in the future. Uh, we have a lot of financial news to get to this week, which we're going to be taking care of in the chart park. And then we're going to be talking about the brand new 2DS XL over in uh, Pocket Talk. But we have to start off by getting on the train. Chug 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 chug. Here comes the train. Tooty toot toot. Beep, beep. That's right, it's time for the hype train. Feel the PR vibrations as we barrel towards video game satisfaction station on the hype train. This is the part of the show we talk about all those upcoming video games and events to get you hyped up to spend all your money and become a video game guru. I'm going to be honest, it's a, uh, well, it's a, um, it's a bit of a slow week here on the hype train. Uh, chart Park, very, very busy. Hype train, not a whole lot going on. So I figured let's start off by talking about free stuff because everybody likes free stuff sony has announced the playstation plus free games for the month of may and uh, before we go any further in case you're gonna wonder why aren't we covering the free games for xbox it's because we did it last week we always get this comment why are you not covering the other console it's because either it wasn't released yet or we already covered it so if you want to know the xbox ones just check back on last week's show pretty simple okay anyway uh, make sure to pay attention here because they actually did a, a, a weird regional specific release for the PlayStation 4. So on the PlayStation 4, if you're in North America, you're going to get Abzu, which of course is that game that uh, it's kind of like Journey, but underwater. I didn't really like it, but other people did. However, if you are in Europe, you're going to get Alien Nation. Yes, Alien Nation, which is the top-down shooter, which is made by, uh, I don't really remember the name of the studio, but they're like a... Um, they're not Sony-owned, but they, they make a lot of top-down shooters. I can't remember their name. So, Abzu if you're in North America, Alienation if you're in Europe. Uh, but outside of that, you have Laser Disco Defenders, which is like this uh, twin-stick shooter, looks kind of neat. Tales from the Borderlands, I'll talk about that in a moment, and Type Rider. That is all on the PlayStation 4. Now on the PlayStation 3, you've got Blood Knights and Port Royal 3, Pirates and Merchants, and then finally on the Vita, you're going to also get a copy of Laser Disco Defenders and Type Rider. 
Now I gotta say, all in all, this is a fantastic month for PlayStation Plus, and I'm basing it solely off of one game. I mean, don't get me wrong, I think Typewriter is neat. It's a platformer that teaches you about typography and fonts. If you're into that, uh, Laser Disco Defenders, Twin Stick Shooter, looks interesting, looks like cheap fun, you know, simple cheap fun, nothing wrong with that. I do kind of feel bad for the PlayStation 3 though, because it has like a Diablo clone and an RTS and neither of them look great. One of them I believe is also a mobile game, <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, you get what you get. But, on the PlayStation 4, this is where it gets good. And no, I'm not talking about Abzu or Alienation, I'm talking about Tales from the Borderlands, as it is one of the best games currently available on the PlayStation 4. I know it sounds like high praise. I want to be clear though, I'm not a fan of Borderlands. I'm not a fan of Telltale. I mean, I think they're okay, but they don't blow me away. It's like, oh yeah, okay. Another adventure game or another RPG first-person shooter, big deal. But Tales from the Borderlands, on the other hand, is incredibly good. If you like Firefly, or if you like Guardians of the Galaxy, or if you like uh, Cowboy Bebop, this is an adventure game you want to check out. And a lot of people skipped it because they're like, oh, I don't like Borderlands. Well, neither do I, you know, and I played it. I was just blown away because it's this, you know, gritty science fiction universe where people actually behave like you know, human beings, and, and they set up these elaborate plans, and they always go wrong, they always fall apart, and, you know, it's funny when they do. It's a, it's a comedic game, as well as a science fiction game, as well as sort of a, um, god, I don't even know what you call it, like a western, uh, in a way. Kind of like Gardens of the Galaxy, which is why I want to check out Gardens of the Galaxy, the Telltale game, simply because of this one. I love the characters, I love the world, uh, I love the choices that you make, you do make some amazing choices throughout this game. I love Tales from the Borderlands. Don't sleep on it. It makes this whole PlayStation Plus lineup worth it. It's a slam dunk just on that game. So don't sleep on it. Okay? Okay. Toot toot. Moving on to Xbox, Microsoft has yet again released more Xbox 360 games through the Xbox One backwards compatibility program. They are the following. Time Shift, Assault Heroes 2, Commander's Attack of Genos, never heard of that one, uh, Dead Space 2, Dead Space 3, Hunting Expeditions, Dangerous Hunt 2013, uh, Alaska Adventures, and Survival Shadows of Katme. Shadows of Katme? Uh, whatever. I think it's pretty obvious that the best games in this list, at least from the ones that I've played, are, are Dead Space 2 and Dead Space 3. And, uh, well, okay, wait. I should take that back because Time Shift, I think, does have its fans. Um, I think that was one of the last LucasArts games. I don't really remember, but it's like a first-person shooter. I'm not sure how well it holds up, but it, yeah, it has fans back in the day. But Dead Space, like, now you can play Dead Space 1, Dead Space 2, and Dead Space 3 all on the uh, the Xbox One. And I think even Extraction is available on there, which was that weird first-person uh, light gun game. All available now on the Xbox One. And I know some people didn't really enjoy Dead Space 3, and some people even rolled their eyes when they announced that there was going to be co-op. But I remember... Uh, I think it was 2012 or 2013, no, it was 2013 for sure, I was at a GameStop, and this couple came in, and they were talking to one of the clerks, they're trying to do behind the counter, and they loved Dead Space 3, and they're like, do you have any more co-op horror games? You know, survival horror and co-op, because that just, that totally fit their niche. And the answer was no, and I couldn't think of any either. <laughs> I actually sort of interrupted their conversation. I'm like, I don't think this, there, there's any that really exists. And to this day, and the more I think about it, it's like, I don't know, Zombies Ain't My Neighbors? There's not many co-op horror games. So even if Dead Space 3 
didn't blow you away back in the day. It's still a good game. It's a good game. Is it a great game? Eh. But if you have co-op, apparently it's a lot more fun. So yeah, all in all, good week for uh, Xbox One backwards compatibility. Anyway, toot toot. Last week, Activision and Sledgehammer officially debuted Call of Duty World War II. Yes, it's written out as WW2, but I guess they're going to call it World War II, which I, I, whatever. I guess it looks better on a poster. But they had a live presentation, and as the name implies, the game will take place during the 1940s when America joined the Allied forces to push back the German invasion. Uh, during interviews with Polygon, Sledgehammer's Glenn Schofield emphasized this year's game's gameplay differences. Uh, quote, you have to worry about every bullet. You're not the superhero. You can't just stand there and take several bullets ducking, shooting again. It's refreshing for us to deal with recruits recruits who aren't tier one warriors to show that vulnerability. They're naive. It's been a really cool challenge creating this different kind of gameplay, end quote. Uh, Activision has repeatedly explained that World War II will take the series back to its roots. That's an actual quote. Back to its roots with boots on the ground gameplay. More on that in just a moment. Uh, also hinting that multiplayer will feature some sort of dedicated class system as well as a social hub where avatars will be able to meet up outside of matches, which would be a very, that'd be a brand new feature for the series. Uh, Co-op will also make its return in Zombies. However, they're saying that it will be a story mode. Quote, the story of the Third Reich's desperate attempt to create an army in the final stages of the war, end quote. So presumably it's going to be its own unique campaign that will happen to feature zombies as opposed to just the, um, the, uh, I guess it, it's just like, what would you even call that? It's a wave based, I guess it's like a horde mode. Let's go with that. We'll call it a horde mode. Uh, Call of Duty World War II will launch on November 3rd for the PlayStation 4, Xbox One and PC. So I actually watched this entire uh, live stream uh, with my cat. My cat was there, and I will admit the room was slightly divided. Uh, I was enjoying myself. I was entertained. The cat was asleep. We had a, a mixed crowd, I guess you could say. Uh, but I will say this much. This was the least awkward presentation I've seen in some time. I've watched enough E3s. I've watched enough live streams where... Not everything is connecting, and there's just a lot of awkward silences, and, you know, this by far was the least awkward, which means it was still pretty awkward. They had this guy from YouTube who was just rambling out about how much he loved zombies, and it was obviously heavily scripted, but they, they hit all the points that they wanted to make. They had the actors on stage, and they did a good job explaining their roles. They explained the gameplay very well. And they produced the hell out of this presentation. But what impressed me most is how they constantly said boots on the ground. This is boots on the ground gameplay. Now, I don't know who came up with that phrase uh, in regards to Call of Duty, at least. I know that's a phrase outside of uh, outside of there. But this is, a, this is a sentence that I've heard from a lot of lapsed fans. People that say, oh, I want to play Call of Duty, but I want it to be boots on the ground. Like verbatim, people would complain about Infinite Warfare and say, we want boots on the ground. We don't like this. Um, but I will say, as just a bit of a side note, that's kind of a problematic phrase because it reduces the value of an individual soldier to a pair of boots. But whatever. Uh, but yes, it sounds like it's a real throwback to Call of Duty 2. I mean, I expected them to, you know, return the series somewhat to maybe Modern Warfare standards. I knew they were going to get rid of the double jumps. I knew they were going to get rid of the drone strikes. But it sounds like regenerative health is gone. 
just straight up gone. And it sounds like there's going to be, you know, classes in multiplayer, like Medic and Assault. That's what it sounds like. And, you know, I know that Battlefield 1 has been doing that for years, but those are gigantic maps and 40-minute matches. And I love Battlefield 1. I love the Battlefield series, so I have no issue with that. But it's cool to see a more narrow-focused, class-based first-person shooter without regenerative health. I mean, that's the type of games, I mean, if you're not old enough, you might not remember, but there were games back in the day like uh, Wolfenstein on the original Xbox and, you know, even Call of Duty 2 back in 2005 on, on the Xbox 360. And as soon as Call of Duty made the jump over to Modern Warfare and just straight up had regenerative health and, and got rid of basically all the classes, you just customized everything, um, no one's really picked up that mantle. It's been, you know, just absent. No one does it anymore. And that's a shame because it's really addictive. It requires a lot of strategy and it's fast paced, which there's just not that genre anymore. So this sounds like a huge change for the franchise. And personally, I'm super hyped for it. I'm looking forward to seeing what they have at E3. But I do want to hear from you guys. Let me know what you thought about the presentation, what you thought about the trailer. Uh, I mean, it's World War II. We're going back and there will definitely be storming the beaches. Oh, yeah. And good graphics. The graphics were top-notch in uh, in that trailer. Oh, and one more thing I do want to mention. There was this one guy that was being interviewed uh, for, like, this documentary style, and he, he basically was just going like, Oh, my... Oh, World War II, it was just so much bigger than World War One, And that, to me, that just felt like a slight dig at, at Battlefield One. I. I don't know if they intentionally meant to do that, but it just felt like, Yeah, you can do Battlefield One, EA. We're doing... Or you can do World War One EA. We're doing World War Two, and it's so much bigger. <laughs> That's the vibe that I got. Anyway, toot toot. It's been nearly 13 years since a Burnout Racing game was released uh, with their much-beloved Crash Mode. Now, they've released Burnout games since then, but Crash Mode has been absent. Now, Three Fields Entertainment, a studio comprised of former Criterion employees, is looking to bring it back in a game called Danger Zone that will release next month on the PlayStation 4, Xbox One, and PC. In it, players will attempt to cause horrific accidents and pileups as they slam their cars directly into traffic. You know, I heard about this game uh, last week and I got really pumped. I'm like, oh, wow, Danger Zone, that's a great name, you know, because it really invokes the old Burnout style. I loved Crash Mode back in the day. It was awesome. I never understood why EA and Criterion gave up on Crash Mode. Maybe they just felt like it was a one-trick pony kind of deal, but, I mean, you can still go back and play Burnout 3, and it holds up. Just that Crash Mode, it holds up. It's so much fun, because it's it's almost like Peggle, but with cars, you know? It's, it's, it's great, it's simple, it's satisfying, and everyone I know that ever played it loved it. And then they just got rid of it for no reason. I mean, they launched that awful 2011 top-down version of Crash Mode, but that is not Crash Mode, because Crash Mode is in 3D and whatever. Anyway, so Danger Zone, awesome, right? Well, not really. I'm super skeptical about this game. The thing is that Three Fields Entertainment, they uh, they put out a game called Dangerous Golf, where basically it was crash mode, but with a golf ball. This was, I think, two years ago. And uh, I think that's an amazing idea for a game. Like, even right now, I'm thinking like, ah, oh, Dangerous Golf, that sounds awesome. But that game sucked. The controls sucked. The The, the camera was bad. Uh, the, the locations were boring. And it was glitchy. You would get your ball stuck in, like, you know, random rooms that you couldn't leave that had nothing you could destroy. And I'm not saying Danger Zone won't be good, but because of what happened with Dangerous Golf, which, like I said, is still a brilliant idea that was horribly executed, I'm, I'm just skeptical of Three Fields' ability. I mean, they're still a new studio. 
So maybe they're hitting their stride, and maybe this will be the return to Crash Mode that we've all been waiting for, and, you know, even if you've never played Crash Mode, trust me, you've been waiting for it. It's that good. Just go track down an original Xbox and play <laughs> Burnout 3. But for right now, I'm gonna say it's a wait and see. Anyway. Toot toot. Uh, after a few months of silence, Capcom has revealed more details regarding Marvel vs. Capcom Infinite. Uh, there will be six new characters. Oh no, there's six new characters that have been announced. They are Marvel's Rocket Raccoon, Thor, and Hawkeye, as well as Capcom's Chris Redfield, Strider, and Chung Lee. Capcom has also revealed the game's villain will be Ultron Sigma, a hybrid of Ultron from Marvel Comics and Sigma from Capcom's uh, Mega Man X series. An original name, I know. Uh, when the game launches, it will arrive in three separate editions, including the standard $60 retail edition, a $90 deluxe edition, which will pack in with the 2017 season pass, hinting that there might be more season passes after 2017, uh, and the $200 collector's edition, which includes a steelbook, four character dioramas, and six Infinity Stone replicas. Uh, Marvel vs. Capcom Infinite will be released on September 3rd on the PlayStation 4, Xbox One, and PC. In case you missed it, uh, Capcom put out an announcement trailer that just looks amazing. They they introduce all these characters, they're beating the crap out of each other, it looks amazing, just like they always do. But I gotta admit, I'm kinda disappointed in this roster so far. I mean, I understand that Marvel has a say in which characters will be, you know, used in the game. I get that. And they want to push their movie franchises. A plus. I totally understand. But we have 15 characters announced so far. We have 15 characters. And 11 of them were in Marvel vs. Capcom 3. 11 of them! In just the last game. And I get it. Fighting games are about repeating rosters and fan favorites. But the charm of Marvel vs. Capcom has always been seeing characters that don't belong in fighting games. And, you know, once you introduce a character that's already been in a fighting game, you're kind of taking away the magic. And don't get me wrong. I love Ryu. I love Captain America. But I would gladly trade them out for someone we haven't seen yet, like Red Skull. Maybe Metal Man from Mega Man. Those are ideas that that would get me excited, and uh, you know, maybe that's just me, but I would be okay if they ret just retired a few of these characters. Uh, I mean, if it's just going to be a retread, a Marvel vs. Capcom 3, but with more accessible mechanics, that's cool too, I guess, but I just wish that they would have been a bit more upfront about the whole thing. Sad. Just sad. Toot toot. Uh, speaking of Capcom, the Korean Game Ratings Board has listed an application for Rockman Legacy Collection 2, uh, hinting that they might be do they might be producing a follow-up to the Mega Man Collection that was uh, released uh, last year? I want to say it was last year. Yeah, sure. Anyway, the previous bundle featured the Blue Bombers NES releases from Mega Man 1 through Mega Man 6 through a lot of crazy emulation. Seriously, there are whole documentaries about this that feature Frank Cifaldi who worked on it. You have to check it out. It's a, an admirable amount of work. Uh, and that is the whole story. Uh, but of course, the Korean Ratings Board, they do have a history of accidentally leaking games, so this seems feasible. There's a chance it's real. There's a chance that maybe this is a, a bad translation and that maybe they're just releasing I don't know. I don't. They might be releasing something else. But let's let's just pretend that this is real, all right? And I've seen some people online that are assuming it's just going to be Mega Man Seven through Ten, which Mega Man Seven was on the SNES, uh, Mega Man Eight was on the the PlayStation One and Saturn, and then Mega Man Nine and Ten were last generation. They were done in the NES style. And from a preservation standpoint, I think that's awesome because Seven and Eight 
uh, don't get that much attention. But the reason being is that they're just, you know, they're not that good. So if I were Capcom, personally, this is kind of a dream for me, I would go a step above and beyond and look outside of the core franchise because there were so many random Mega Man spinoffs. They straight up had a board game over in Japan uh, that was on the Famicom. They had racing games. They had soccer games. Why not include all of those? There's no licensing issue there. Uh, why not release Mega Man Legends from the PlayStation 1 or or um, that JRPG from uh, the Mega Man X series that was on the GameCube and the PlayStation 2? I mean, they don't seem to have certain, any sort of issue releasing uh, Mega Man Legends 1 and 2 and Tronbon on the Vita and PlayStation 3. Why not release them on, you know, the Xbox One and, 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 and the PlayStation 4 and PC? That'd be amazing. And yeah, I get it, you know. Some of these spin-offs and, and some of these sequels that I'm mentioning, they weren't great, but it does make for at least a more interesting package, because trust me, if you haven't played Mega Man 7 or Mega Man 8 lately, they do not hold up. And Mega Man 10, well, good, also not the most amazing Mega Man experience. Anyway, toot toot. Uh, speaking of re-releases, the campy 1992 interactive movie Night Trap is back. Limited run games and Screaming Villains, I like the fact there's a studio named Screaming Villains, have announced Night Trap, the 25th anniversary edition for the Xbox One and PlayStation 4. The game will feature the same gameplay of the original uh, through the full motion video and and uh, interface from the original game. However, they've been slightly updated, uh, definitely cleaning up the video for Night Trap. Uh, a summer release will be available physically and digitally. Uh, just in case you've never heard of Night Trap before, it's basically a, a video, like a YouTube video, except you make a choice. And man, if you haven't seen this, just Google it. It is the most like 80s style game you've ever seen. And um, there's women singing into tennis rackets and, and, and ninjas who are actually vampires and they're trying to kidnap girls. Uh, it, but yeah, you play the game by basically looking at these scenes and you're like part of the government or something and you stop the vampires by making smoke appear or, or shutting doors on them and trap doors opening up. It's... It's a really dumb, dumb thing. And I know it sounds hilarious, but this game was so controversial when it came out that it was used as a prime example during a Senate hearing on violent video games that basically almost had the government stepping in to regulate video games. Uh, you can actually watch old news programs from the early 90s where there were people debating Night Trap and they were showing clips from Night Trap and people were like, oh, that's, that's so violent. I'm, I'm not making this up. This really happened. If you had to be there, I guess. Um, but yeah, Night Trap. Is it a good game? No. Is it historically significant? Absolutely. Because without that, and without Mortal Kombat, we might not have the ESRB. You know, the rating system, you know, T for Teen, Rated M for Mature. That stemmed from, you know, Night Trap being so controversial at the time. I mean, there were other rating systems that were introduced um, before the ESRB. I know Sega had their very own, and the Nintendo's like, we're not going to follow your ratings board. <laughs> you know, it's Sega. We're, we're not going to trust you guys to rate our games properly. So, yeah, it's, uh... <laughs> it, it, just go look up some video on it, and uh, definitely take a look at this, uh, this remaster, because they really cleaned up that video. 
Anyway, uh, toot toot. And lastly, before we get to this week's releases, uh, a widely publicized mod for Grand Theft Auto V has been cancelled. Red Dead Redemption 5 was a mod attempting to recreate the entirety of the Red Dead Redemption map into Grand Theft Auto V. Now, a week after posting a trailer, the team has announced development has been halted due to a potential legal action from Take Two or Rockstar. Uh, modder Mr. Leisureware expressed regret over the cancellation, stating, quote, I know this is a hard pill to swallow, but as many of you have noticed, we did get contacted, and we sadly have to say that we are stopping this project. So thanks, guys. We're also happy to see this. We were also happy to see this. So thanks, guys. We were also happy to see this, but it isn't going to happen. Sorry. Doesn't make any fucking sense. So thanks, guys. We were also happy to see this, but it isn't going to happen. Sorry. End quote. I don't know what that means. This guy, and this isn't like, this isn't something he said, he wrote this. <laughs> anyway, well, I'm not surprised because I will never understand for the life of me why any modder would ever put out a trailer. You have to have a few brain cells short. Why would you spend days and months and years of your life creating, you know, a potential trademark infringing mod just to announce it right before it goes out? Because you know, you know that almost every fan project gets shut down. And that's why people like to release the games and then release the trailer because by the time they get shut down, people have already seeded torrents and everything's groovy. But no, we have this the same thing with some of these Pokemon, you know, fan-made projects. And, and I mean, look at that Mega Man. I'm not Mega Man. Look at that Metroid game. They didn't release the trailer. They released the game and then they released the trailer. And you can still get that Metroid game if you know where you're looking. Anyway, I, I just think that was ridiculous. Let's move on. Toot toot. Anyway, here are the games that will be coming out this week. On Tuesday, the Caligula Effect. Whoa. Will be on the PlayStation Vita. <laughs> Tumble Seed will be on the PlayStation 4, Nintendo Switch, and PC. Super Rude Bear Resurrection will be on the PlayStation 4 and PC. Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy, the Telltale series, boxed retail versions will be on the PlayStation 4 and Xbox One. On Wednesday, The Legends of Hero Trials of Cold Steel will be on the PC. On Friday, World to the West will be out on the PC and Xbox One and PlayStation 4. Uh, Flat Out Total Insanity will be out on the PlayStation 4 and Xbox One. And lastly, on Friday, Prey, the follow-up to the 2006 game, 2007, 2006? Prey will be on the PlayStation 4, Xbox One, and PC. Beep, beep. That's gonna do it for the Hype Train. Thank you, Hype Train. You're doing the Lord's work. So... We have been building up to this. Hype Train, little light this week. We gotta go on to our main event. We gotta step outside to a place that's always warm with the glow of cold hard cash. That's right, it's time for... The Chart Park. The land where money grows on trees. Yes, the chart park. This is the part of the show we talk about all the legal business financial news in the video game industry. And we also find out which fat cats of Wall Street will tip their top hats towards Lady Luck. We are going to be starting it off by going through a number of nin uh, Nintendo stories. And throughout this, we're going to be talking a lot about earnings reports. We're going to be going through some terminology. I'll explain anything when it comes up. 
So let's start off with Nintendo. Last week, Nintendo released its latest earnings report, giving investors an update on the hardware and software sales. Despite only being released two months ago, the Nintendo Switch has already shipped 2.74 million units worldwide, alongside 5.46 million games. That's just in two months. Pretty damn impressive. Uh, the most popular of which, Zelda Breath of the Wild, has already sold 3.84 million copies, uh, one 0.08 million on the Wii U, the last gen version, and 2.76 on the Switch, placing the attach rate for the Nintendo Switch over 100%. Meaning that there are more copies of Zelda on the Switch sold than the console itself. I have no idea why. Uh, 1-2 Switch, on the other hand, is also doing well with 1 million copies shipped. Uh, Nintendo has forecasted an additional 10 million Switches and 35 million games will ship during this fiscal year, which this fiscal year will end in March on March 31st, 2018. Just so you know, it's not it's not starting in January and ending in December. This is a fiscal year, so it ends on March 31st. Uh, the fledgling Wii U fared far worse than the Nintendo Switch, selling 760,000 units over the past fiscal year. 760,000 units. Games, however, did pretty good, with 14.8 million games sold over the past fiscal year. I'm not saying that 14.8 million is impressive, I'm saying it's very good for a console that only sold 760,000 units. Uh, however, analyst Daniel Ahmad was quick to point out that the system sold zero units over the past three months. I don't know where he got that number from, but that is what he said. Uh, and he is he's generally on point with, with his numbers. We're going to talk about that later on. Uh, the 3DS also saw strong growth with 7.27 million units being sold, pushing the console's lifetime sales to 66 million with 55 0.08 million games sold in the past fiscal year alone. Pokemon Sun and Moon were the best-selling games of the bunch, far and away, accounting for 15.44 million copies. That is, a, that is a killer amount of Pokemon. Seriously, most developers would just die for those numbers. Uh, Amiibo sales were apparently disappointing, only selling 18.4 million, 9.1 million figures, and 9.3 million cards. Uh, Nintendo said it, it was, I believe the word they said was, was spotty, or uh, I, I forget the exact term that Nintendo used, but they made it sound like this was disappointing. Uh, I, I'm not sure what the Amiibo numbers were for last year, so I can't really comment on that. Uh, overall, Nintendo saw a major bump in profit with 102 billion yen. 102 billion yen. Well, I'll make that very clear. It's not 102 billion dollars. That would be insane. It's 102 billion yen. Uh, that's up over 521% compared to the previous fiscal year. However, sales were largely stagnant at 489 billion yen, a dip of 3%. A Nintendo has forecasted this year's profits will reach 65 billion yen, which would make it the highest profit since the 2011 fiscal year closed, meaning Nintendo was extremely confident going into this year. In related news, the recently released Mario Kart 8 Deluxe has already become Amazon.com's best-selling game of 2017 so far. Uh, before we go any further, um, 
I want to address what we were talking about with the Wii U over the past three months. The idea that it had sold zero units. And I'm not doubting uh, Mr. Hamad's uh, reading of the numbers. I just don't believe that the numbers are accurate or that that's possible. Someone, somewhere, had to buy a Wii U in the past three months. And we know this because every week we cover the Japanese charts. And the Wii U still outsells the Xbox One. So we have the numbers that people are buying this. What I'm assuming is being being communicated is that no retailer purchased a Wii U, even though that doesn't make much sense either. But we know for a fact that people bought the Wii U in the past three months. So I don't know where you got that number from. I'm sure there's a better explanation, but anyway. Uh, this is a very promising start for the Nintendo Switch. Though, as I've stated before, I'm skeptical of the long-term growth of the console. It's a cool piece of tech. It absolutely is a cool piece of tech, but it's going to face some stiff competition with other gadgets. There's always new phones, maybe something that's really going to blow people away that they might want to invest their, their money into instead of picking up another console. I mean, and, and, and speaking of consoles, they're also going up against the PlayStation 4 and Xbox One uh, Scorpio later this fall. Graphics are reaching new heights. Obviously, the Nintendo Switch is limited. We saw that with Zelda Breath of the Wild, which had major frame rate issues. Um, and I do mean major frame rate issues. I know they put out some patch that apparently uh, fixed a lot of it, but like, where is the ceiling on that console? I'm not sure. Uh, but I will admit that Nintendo so far is making all of the right moves. Uh, case in point, they had a brand new shipment of Switch units on Friday, last Friday, they, they put out new Switch units, which happened to be the exact same day as Mario Kart 8 Deluxe. That's smart business. Get people in the door to buy the Switch. There's Mario Kart, and they can grab the Zelda, so that way you're getting two games instead of one. Because honestly, one, two Switch is... I don't think that game has legs. I really don't. I don't think it's possible. Um, and, you know, actually, I was at a local store on Friday, and I saw 10 people waiting in line to buy a Nintendo Switch, so clearly there was demand. Uh, but later on, I needed to pick up some batteries, some very specific batteries, so I went to another place that also happened to sell Nintendo Switches, and it was very late at night, and I asked the clerk, I was like, hey, you got any more Nintendo Switches left over? And uh, he said yes. He said they, they had plenty left over if I was interested. And I said, no, I'm just wondering. <laughs> I didn't tell him that I was going to tell you guys, but you know. Uh, so either Nintendo has already put out enough for everybody, which is, which is cool, or demand just isn't that strong, as maybe they were guessing, or maybe people didn't hear the news that it was going to be, you know, brand new shipments were coming in, or maybe they just assumed that they would already be sold out, so they didn't even bother. Uh, maybe it was just bad timing. I, I, I don't really know. But anyway, like I've said, we're going to have to wait a year to find out exactly where the Nintendo Switch is going. But right now, Nintendo is extremely confident that this year, the Nintendo Switch is going to be hitting some major milestones. If they can sell 10 million more before the end of this fiscal year, then I think it's it's going to be doing all right. I'm not going to say it's going to be the fastest selling console ever or that's going to surpass the PlayStation 4 or, or, or you know, even surpass the Wii. But I will say, so far, so good, Nintendo. Anyway, let's go on to some more Nintendo news. Uh, two weeks ago, Nintendo announced the discontinuation of the much sought-after, hard-to-find micro console, the NES Classic. And after a heated internet backlash, Nintendo's president, Reggie fils Nintendo of America's president and CEO, COO, uh, Reggie fils responded to the fan outcry in an interview with Time Magazine. 
Quote, we'd originally planned for this to be a product for last holiday. We just didn't anticipate how incredible the response would be. Once we saw that response, we added shipments and extended the product for as long as we could to meet more consumer demand. Uh, from our perspective, it's important to recognize where our future is and the key areas that we need to drive. We've got a lot going on right now, and we don't have unlimited resources, end quote. Uh, at last check, the NES Classic shipped 2.3 million units, though many would-be owners have complained over the limited supply and sporadic communication from Nintendo. If I had to guess, and this is just me, if I had to guess why exactly Reggie said, you know, well, we don't have unlimited resources, why you give all these excuses. I think it's just him towing the company line, which he should, because that is his job. But I'm not sure if Reggie exactly agrees with this. You know, him just, it just seems like a lot of dumb excuses. Oh, it's just for holidays. Uh, you know, oh, we don't have unlimited resources. Oh, we don't, you know, I, I, I don't buy it. I think it's total bullshit. Because I understand Nintendo has limited resources. I get that. Every company does. But when someone is handing you money, let alone millions of people are handing you money, why do you say no? Why would you say no? You don't have to worry about the resources then if people are willing to pay you for those resources being spent. And there were clearly a lot of people. Now, maybe the profit margin just wasn't there, but I don't buy that either. You get $60 for a piece of plastic that has, you know, just 30 games. How much memory is even in that system? It's nothing. So the idea that, oh, we're just so busy with other things. I get it, you're busy. But, you know, spin it out, sell it to someone else. Be like, hey, Nyko, can you just start making these for us? Something. Um, but I do believe there's going to be another uh, NES Classic, maybe later this year, just in time for Christmas. That's my belief. I really think that's going to happen. Uh, as for the rumored SNES Classic that we heard from Eurogamer last week, I'll believe it when I see it. I mean, I believe Nintendo will do it at one point or another. I just think this is too early. I don't imagine they're going to be doing this right now. Anyway, moving on. Uh, lastly, Nintendo news. One of the most influential creators ever in the video game industry is stepping down. Uh, last week, uh, Genyo Takade announced his... Did I say Takada? I said Takade, which sounds like the beer. It's Genyo Takada announced his retirement from Nintendo after 45 years with the company. Takada originally joined Nintendo back in 1975, where he worked alongside Gunpei Yonkoi and helped develop a series of shooting ranges. Uh, though initially profitable, the venture nearly collapsed the company during the oil crisis in the late 1970s. Uh, he would then go on to aid in the design of the very first Nintendo major home console, the Famicom, which would become a worldwide success thanks to its affordability and, and this is the important stuff this is the important thing that he did, arcade style graphics, though this was possible due to the cartridges containing their own RAM and special chips, keeping the cost of the console down uh, so that, you know, anyone could buy it. Uh, Takata would have a direct involvement in all of the following consoles from Nintendo, from the disappointing GameCube to the smash hit Wii. When Satoru Iwata passed in 2015, some assumed Takata would become the next president, though instead he took on the nebulous role of technology fellow. Still don't know what that means, but that was his role when he stepped down. 
Dakota and his R&D3 team have been credited with a series of advancement in game control from the Nintendo 64's prominent analog stick to the Wii's motion controllers. But he also had a limited role as a game director. He worked on games such as Punch-Out, Star Tropics, and Zoda's Revenge, Star Tropics 2 on the Famicom. Uh, Takata will officially step down uh, later this June. You know, I, I often say that Nintendo gets far too much credit. Like, if anything major happened in video games, oh, Nintendo did it first, which is always bullshit, you know. They, they, they borrow just as much as many other developers. Uh, but Takata, this guy is the real deal. And if you haven't read the book Game Over, which is, from, I think it was released in 1993, I highly recommend it. There are tons of details about him and his relationship with Gumpa Yonkoi. Uh, he was very young when he was hired. I believe he was like 23 or something. So he's a kid, man. And, you know, what Yokoi was to handhelds, uh, Takeda was to consoles. I'm going to go with Takeda. I feel like that's how you pronounce his name. Um, which is why, you know, Nintendo's platforms were generally underpowered but they used a bunch of different tricks to match their competitors, whether that was putting those chips in those cartridges or, you know, adding motion controls to essentially a last-gen console. Every console this guy had a hand in was borderline indestructible. The way they designed these consoles, you could take a Nintendo 64, you could take a GameCube, just chuck it across the room, just throw it as hard as you could, pick it up, plug it in, it will still work. That is where the Nintendo home console methods came from. You know, I'm not gonna say it was all him, but he was definitely there. He was definitely involved. And you can see the same repeating factors and themes in all of those home consoles. Now, I know Miyamoto didn't have much involvement in the Nintendo Switch's design. And I kind of assume neither did uh, Takata. But, you know, it, it still feels like they are emulating Nintendo's philosophy for home consoles. So, this is more than just the end of an era. This is just new territory for Nintendo. They just don't release home consoles without him. So, hope you have a good retirement. You earned it. Moving on to Xbox news, Microsoft has given a glimpse into the Xbox brand's current situation. I do mean a glimpse. In the latest financial report, the company revealed that the Xbox Live user base had jumped 13% to 52 million active users. 52 million active users. Work with that number. Uh, overall, Microsoft's earnings reached $13.4 billion, down 7% year-on-year, with revenues totaling $23.6 billion. They're kind of a big company. Uh, with its highest area of growth coming from its cloud division, bringing in 15.2 in revenue. I wish we could talk more about this Xbox news. I would love to talk about that, uh, the, the 50 some odd million uh, you know, active users. But we really can't talk about Microsoft's numbers because Microsoft doesn't give numbers on the Xbox anymore because they don't matter. That's what they say. Microsoft says they don't matter. The sales numbers, huh? Why don't we talk about engagement? Let's talk about engagement. Oh, wow. That's awesome. And you know what? They're right. We should talk about engagement. We should talk about active users. And you know what else we should do? We should talk about how many fucking Xbox One sold in the past fiscal year. But they don't do that, and they haven't done that for years because they're embarrassed, they're gun-shy, and they refuse to do it. And I think that's insulting. I think that's insulting to those investors who are like, well, what the fuck is going on with your, with your home console division, which costs a lot of money? How can you go from releasing all of these numbers on Xbox 360 sold this million, this million, this million, and the moment that the, the Xbox One sales stall, uh, number, uh, sales numbers don't matter anymore. 
I mean, the investors know better. I assume that they know better. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like I said, engagement matters. I get it. Xbox Live accounts matter. But I don't know how to decipher those numbers. I was talking to somebody the other day, and they were showing me a picture of their cat. Because, hey, (laughs) if you got a picture of your cat, I want to see it. And uh, I was like, oh, is that an Xbox 360 in the back? Like, oh, yeah, we still have that plugged in. We play games every now and again, but, you know, we, uh, we use it for Netflix for the most part. Are they on the list? Are they part of the 52 million? You know, uh, I don't know. I have no idea because it's it, it's active accounts. It's not gold accounts. It's just active accounts. Just people that are just using the system. They're turning it on. So that says next to nothing. That is just that is that it's it's too foggy to actually decipher how the Xbox One is doing. And you know, last we heard uh, from EA. Well, I mean, it was basically this EA made a statement and people deciphered it to say that, you know, maybe the Xbox One is just in the low 20s, like the low 20s, like maybe 20 million, 21 million. We don't have any idea. Trust me, if the Xbox One Scorpio becomes the best selling console of all time, do you think that the numbers aren't going to matter anymore? Do you think that, you know, Microsoft's going to be like, nope, 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 sticking to our guns. We're not going to, we're not going to, it's all about engagement. Hell no. They would release those numbers in an instant. They'd be like, holy shit, we sold 50 million, you know, in a year. They would. But when they have this gated approach, where it's all hush-hush, how can you not, as an investor, assume the worst? It's ridiculous. It's stupid. They need to get over it. I, I mean, I understand that it will not benefit them. I understand why they're doing it, but it's... Whatever, the most profitable division in your company is apparently just not that important anymore to even actually give specifics. It's ridiculous. Anyway, let's move on to PlayStation news where we have actual numbers, and I appreciate that. Thank you, every other fucking company. Uh, Sony has announced that they have shipped over 60 million PlayStation 4 consoles with 2.9 million shipped in the last quarter alone. That is up 20% from the same period last year. Uh, Addressing the annual numbers, the PlayStation 4 saw over 20 million units shipped during the last fiscal year, up 11.5% from the previous year. However, Sony has predicted this year's shipments will be down to 18 million. So they they shipped 20 million last year. They're saying this year we're going to be a little bit lower with 18 million. We're going to talk about that in a second. Uh, Overall, the games and networks division saw 14.73 billion dollars in revenue. That's uh, 6.3% year-on-year growth, with an operating income of 1.2 billion dollars. In case you don't know, I do want to address this real quick because you might be listening to this. Uh, Operating income. What exactly is that? That means um, you know you spent all this money, right? uh, And to, to produce a PlayStation, like oh, we're spending all this. Let's say, um, all right, let's say the PlayStation 4 Pro, that's $400. Let's say it costs Sony $350 to produce, you know, and then they basically make $50 back. That's the operating income right there. That's not, that's not really accurate. You know, I don't know how much it costs to make the system, but that's the operating income. That's how much they've spent and they're getting it back. So when they cut all of their costs down, this is the amount of money they're making in. Some people say that's profit, but it's not really net income is profit because operating income is before uh, interest and tax. Financial stuff. Yeah. But the operating income was $1.2 billion for the network and games division, which is really impressive. Uh, Though Sony was quick to point out that their growth was impacted by price cuts and the foreign exchange rates because, of course, they cut the price on the PlayStation 4 and uh, especially with the new Slim model. Altogether, Sony's annual 
uh, revenue uh, was a bit of a drop at $67.88 billion, that's down 6.2%, and operating income dipped to $2.57 billion. I know, uh, altogether, that's really impressive. You know, and, and some people might say, who cares, big deal, Sony's doing well. Well, this is actually incredible news for the company, even if it saw a bit of a slip. Because it was only a few years ago, Sony had to cut 18,000 jobs just to become profitable. They were actually losing billions of dollars every single year. They were losing money every year. Every year. They were spinning out and, and selling major divisions of their company. Their credit score was, was dropping. <laughs> and now, it seems like everything's pretty good. You know, in fact, the PlayStation 4 is on track to surpass the PlayStation 2 in terms of sales, which would be humongous. That would make it the best-selling console of all time. And uh, the way that, you know, Sony strategically cut those prices, then how they've introduced, um, you know, the PlayStation 4 Pro. I'm not sure what the sales numbers on there are, but if it's doing well, then that's, that's awesome. Uh, so long as they can avoid their pattern of extreme hubris... <laughs> then everything will be fine. Because in case you don't know, every time Sony does really well, they start to kind of lose their minds and then release a $600 console in 2006. You adjust that for inflation, it's bonkers. Uh, as for the 18 million PlayStation 4 forecast, uh, which is down, you know, compared to the last year, I think that's a really smart move because they're recognizing they have stronger competition this year than in the past. I mean, you know, last year they were going up against the Xbox One, a great console, but it's not really selling. And the Wii U, which, you know, bad console, and it also didn't sell. Uh, now they're going up against the Scorpio, and they're going up against the Switch. And, you know, the point of, of forecasting these numbers is to give a realistic expectation while also trying to make it possible that you can overcome that that uh, that prediction. Because if you, if you set a goal... And it has to be a reasonable goal. You can't just be like, we're going to sell 50 PlayStation 4s because they'll be like, fuck you, you're fudging the numbers. But if they set a realistic goal and they go over it, that that excites uh, investors, you know, and so their stock will rise, which would be cool. Hopefully, I guess we'll see next year. Please don't screw this up, Sony. <laughs> I just feel bad if you did. Anyway, moving on. If the rumors are to be believed, Ubisoft's decades of independence might be coming to an end soon. According to Reuters, a number of sources close to Vendi, the gigantic conglomerate, have leaked the company's intentions to enter the, quote, second phase, end quote, and purchase Ubisoft later this year. Since fall of 2015, Vendi has slowly acquired a growing stake in the French publisher, totaling 25% ownership as of last December. Vendi has repeatedly stated it has no intentions to pursue a hostile takeover, and in case you don't know, a hostile takeover is where you, uh, where you buy stock from a company to the point where you own it, even though the company you're buying does not want you to buy it. So let's say that you know, you have a company and you have stock available because you're a publicly traded company and I just keep buying stock and buying stock and buying stock and you realize that you're going to be losing a controlling interest, which means I'm going to be making all the choices in your company. I'm going to be able to call the shots. And you're like, please don't do that. And I'm like, no, I'm going to keep doing it and I keep buying stock. That's what a hostile takeover is, in case you don't know. I feel like I should bring this up ever so often. Uh, Ubisoft's Yves Gaumont has aggressively criticized the continued purchase of stock, with Ubisoft buying back 3.2% uh, shares of the company last fall. Uh, if and when Vinvendi reaches 30% ownership, it would be required to seek a majority share according to French law. That's how the law works. You reach 30%. 
quit dicking around, either control the company or don't. That's how it works in France. Uh, last year, Finvendi in, uh, actually engaged Gameloft, the mobile developer, in a hostile takeover, which at the time was run by Yves brother, Michel Gilmont. He then stepped down after the hostile takeover. You know, it's funny, last week we were uh, we were talking about Ubisoft, and I wondered aloud, why haven't we heard anything about Vinvendi in a while? And now here we are. I've said it before, and I will say it again, I really hope Vinvendi does not purchase Ubisoft. In case you don't know, Vinvendi used to own Activision Blizzard until Activision Blizzard just straight up bought themselves out from Vinvendi. <laughs> And when you look back at Activision Blizzard uh, during the Vinvendi era, that's when the company was creatively stifled. That's when it just felt like they aren't doing much of anything outside of World of Warcraft and Call of Duty. And once they kind of got away and a few years later, now we're seeing exciting things like Overwatch. And uh, um, definitely Call of Duty took some new directions, new choices, putting it in outer space. Even if you don't like it, it's certainly not the same thing over and over again. If Ubisoft was owned by Vinvendi, there still would have been an Assassin's Creed game this year. They would have never taken a break. Uh, I would say it's debatable if Vinvendi would have approved this this renaissance of Rayman 2D games or, or cool indie titles like uh, Child of Light or Valiant Hearts. Vinvendi wants sure things. And I know Ubisoft gets a lot of crap uh, from, from their E3 downgrades where the graphics don't look as good to the weird glitches and all that stuff. But they, as a company... They take chances. They invest in new IP. Uh, they reinvent old properties. Look at what they're doing with the Tom Clancy's Rainbow Six series. People love it. That's a chance I'm not sure uh, they would have taken if Invendi was to own them. And I'm sure if Invendi does purchase the company, we're going to see a significant slowdown in a lot of new ideas coming out of Ubisoft. And that would be terrible. So best of luck, Ubisoft. Anyway, uh, Capcom has also released their fiscal financial report of the past year, and the results show a promising improvement. Uh, last January's Resident Evil 7 sold over 3.5 million units worldwide. Uh, though considered a success, the game failed to reach the forecasted 4 million target. So in other words, Capcom said, we're going to sell at least 4 million. And they only sold 3.5, so kind of disappointing. Uh, the re-release of Resident Evil 6 sold over 1 million copies between the Xbox One and PlayStation 4. Fairly impressive, considering that game, you know, it's just a $20 last-gen game. Uh, and their smash hit, Monster Hunter XX, sold over 1.7 million copies, despite only being available on the 3DS in Japan. However, the Xbox One timed exclusive, Dead Rising 4, Fumbled, missing its 2 million forecast and selling less than 1 million copies so far. We'll talk about that in a second. Overall, the company's net sales reached $782.9 million with an operating income of $122.5 million. That's up 13%. Ordinary income was at 13 million. That's, oh no, I'm sorry, 113 million. Big difference. That's up 10.9%. And net income was up. Uh, no, it was $79.7 million. That's up 14.6%. In case you don't know, net income is is basically uh, operating can income after you factor in the interest and taxes. So 79.7%, that is the profit. Uh, this is thanks to an increase in the digital, mobile, and even arcade revenue. Yes, arcade revenue. They're still involved in that. And while the purchasing... <laughs> 
And this was while the merchandising and licensing division uh, rose by 89.8% in terms of operating income, even though the general revenue remained flat. You know, I learned a lot from this financial report from Capcom, like how Monster Hunter XX is actually called Double Cross. I'm just going to keep calling it XX, though, because that's not how you spell Double Cross. Uh, I, I don't actually know how that's even possible. Is that like a Japanese thing? I, I don't really know. But there is one thing that concerns me about this report, and that is the complete absence of Street Fighter V. I know it wasn't released in the past year, but if they were selling a lot of DLC, which they are selling a lot of DLC, but are, if people were actually purchasing the DLC, I'm sure they would have would have mentioned something, but no. They didn't mention anything about it. As for Dead Rising 4, that is really no surprise. I don't know why they made that game. I really don't. I, I actually played all the way through Dead Rising 4, even wrote a review, which I never released because I don't know why, but it was just such a depressing, boring, flat game. It was so unremarkable. Like, everything that was cool about Dead Rising just wasn't there. They, you know, they got rid of the timer system. Okay, fine. Well, what are you going to put in place? Well, nothing. You just wander around and you hit zombies and here's a robot suit. It was lame. It was a lame game. And I don't think anyone really walked away from that E3 reveal excited about the, the franchise in general. And after I played Dead Rising 4, I went back and played Dead Rising 2, and man, those games hold up. They're not for everybody, but they hold up. And the word of mouth on Dead Rising 4, I think, is just... When they release that on PlayStation 4, I, I, I don't think it's going to do very well. Anyway, in our dumbest uh, story of the week, one of the best Overwatch players in the world has ended his career in horrific spectacle. During a live stream, esports player Matt Vaughan loudly screamed the N-word slur for 23 seconds straight. I'm not making this up. He was immediately dropped from his team and his Twitch channel has been shut down due to their breach of... Uh, uh, terms and services. They don't support someone screaming racial slurs for 23 seconds straight. Uh, in a statement, Vagen stated he didn't sleep well, the match was lagging, the opposing team was cheating, and they were, quote, talking shit, end quote. Uh, Vagen has apologized for the outburst and promised he's not racist. You know, when I read this story, I was shocked. I really was. I mean, not because of the language. <laughs> no, no, no. Racism is still alive. You can go on Twitter and you'll see for yourself. But for years, I've been wondering, what happened to all those guys that were on Xbox Live? They, you know, they threw out all the, the, the homophobic and racist slurs. What happened? Where did they go? And now we know. They went pro. It all makes sense. Moving on. Earlier this month, Atlas released their long-awaited JRPG Persona 5 with some unusual streaming and video restrictions, warning players not to show any content beyond a certain point in the game. Now Atlas has apologized, explaining, quote, We want to apologize to those of you who saw the previous guidelines blog posted as threatening. We want to be transparent about what we do, and the reason we released the guidelines was to give streamers the right information up front. It was never our intention to threaten people with copyright strikes, but uh, we clearly chose the wrong tone for how to communicate this, and quote. Well, that's cool. Because I always thought that those restrictions were really, really stupid. But, um, I think it's just worth mentioning that this whole blog post, this whole apology, is a fucking lie. 
You might be saying, whoa, that's a bit of strong language. Well, really? I mean, they're saying like, oh, no, you can... That, we didn't want to make it sound threatening or anything. We didn't... You, people can share stuff. Really? Then why on the PlayStation 4 can you not use share functionality? It's still completely disabled for Persona 5. And you know what? This whole thing about, oh, we're not... We're not... We're not trying to put down copyright strikes. That, sorry, that was not meant to be a threat. Really? Because we have the statement right here, what you said last... Well, actually, yes, it was technically last month. Here it is. Quote... If you decide to stream past 7-7, I highly recommend not doing this. You have been warned. You do so at the risk of being issued a copyright ID claim or worse, a channel strike slash account suspension, end quote. There's the words in plain English. Whatever their intentions were. Oh, we didn't want to be threatening. We didn't want to threaten anybody with the content ID strikes. Yes, you did because you did. You had it right there. You wrote that. Content ID strikes. You idiots. Dumb fucks. You have it in writing. Anyone can look this up. But they didn't mean to be threatening, so I guess it's all good. Dumbasses. Let's go over to the cursed land of tea and crumpets known as the United Kingdom to find out where the 10 best-selling games from the past week. Uh, number 10 was The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. Number 9 was Mass Effect Andromeda. Number 8 was Call of Duty Infinite Warfare. Number 7 was Overwatch. Number 6 was Horizon Zero Dawn. Number 5 was Rocket League. Number 4 was Lego Worlds. Man, that game has staying power. Number 3 was FIFA 17 because, of course, I have a theory. The UK likes soccer. Number two was Grand Theft Auto V. Game came out in 2013. Just pointing that out. It's been, you know, three and a half years and still doing fine. And number one was Ghost Recon Wildlands, uh, which I'm really surprised to see because does anyone actually really like Wildlands? I don't know. I thought it was okay. Anyway, let's go over to the Cursed Land of Bullet Trains, known as Japan, to find one of the 10 best-selling games over there. Number 10 on the 3DS was Mario Sports Superstars, which sold over 7,000 copies. Number 9 was Mina Dewawi Spelunker. I don't know what that is, but it was on the Nintendo Switch, and it sold uh, over 7,447 copies. Number 8 was Prep of the Rapper Remastered on the PlayStation 4, which makes my heart so happy. Number 7 was 1-2-Switch, because apparently Nintendo didn't get the memo that that's a bad game. Number 6 is The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild Limited Edition on the Nintendo Switch. Number 5 is Monster Hunter XX on the 3DS. Number 4 was Dungeon Travelers 2-2, The Maiden Who Fell to the Darkness and the Book of the Beginnings on the PlayStation Vita. I'll admit it, I think that's at least a cool name. Number three was Dark Souls 3 The Fire Fades Edition, which I think includes all the DLC that was on the PlayStation 4. And number two was Pro Yaku Famitsia Climax (laughs) on the 3DS. And number one was Fire Emblem Echoes Shadow of Valentia on the 3DS, which of course is a remake of a Famicom an NES game. But what are the best-selling consoles over in Japan? Well, let's find out. Nintendo Switch sold 48,694. The new 3DS LL sold 17,570. PlayStation 4 sold 15,222. PlayStation Vita sold 5,164. PlayStation 4 Pro sold 4,112. 2DS sold 3,945. New 3DS sold 1,114. PlayStation 3 sold 367. Wii U sold 262 and in last place for the eighth week in a row it's the xbox one with 68 68 
And that's going to do it for the chart park, the land where money grows on trees. We've talked about the big news. Now it's time to talk about the smaller things. That's right. It's time to get tiny. It's time for Pocket Talk. Pocket Talk. Pocket Talk. We have only one story in Pocket Talk, which is where we talk about all the mobile and handheld news, but it is a major one. Way back in 2011, Nintendo launched the 3DS. Now, six years later, 66 million sold and a brand new portable console. Many assumed Nintendo would sunset their popular dual screen system. They were wrong. Nintendo has announced a new iteration for the 3DS, the new 2DS XL, a handheld that shares all the same features of the new 3DS XL, including uh, faster loading, a couple of exclusives, and near-field communication for Amiibos without any of the glasses-free 3D. Uh, The new 2DS XL will launch for $150 on July 29th. Following the announcement, Nintendo of America's Reggie Fizeme confirmed that the system would see continued support into 2018. If true, this would put the 3DS's life cycle to seven years. Its predecessor, the Nintendo DS, was released in 2004 with a seven-year life cycle as well. Let me tell you what happened when I found out about the new new 2DS XL. I'm still not used to saying it. When I saw that... When I saw that YouTube trailer... I screamed no, and then I screamed how, and then I screamed never, because I never thought that they would actually release another 2DS. I mean, I thought the point of the 2DS was to make a cheaper version of the 3DS, you know, get rid of the clamshell style, uh, no 3D, make it a hell of a lot more cheap so, so that they could sell more. But nope, Nintendo is putting out a premium edition 2DS. For what reason, I have no idea. But actually, I take that back. I take that back. The new 2DS XL reminds me of the Game Boy Micro. Back when Nintendo launched the DS, they also launched the Game Boy Micro in close vicinity because they were a little nervous. They were a little worried that the DS was going to flounder. And maybe Nintendo had this prepared because it looks like a great system. It's got like this cool blue and black look. It's awesome. Just in case maybe the Switch, you know, stumbled out of the gate and it didn't do quite as well as they would hope. Because keep in mind, when the 3DS launched back in 2011, which was also a spring launch, it didn't do so good. The first year of the 3DS was a bit of a debacle. No one bought the damn thing, which is why they had to do the whole, uh, you know, ambassador club thing and give away all those free games. So I think that they were just trying to cover their ground and be like, okay, just in case the Switch doesn't do amazing, we'll have this. And that's, that's smart. Wow. I'm actually feeling nostalgic for 2011. That's really messed up. And that's also going to have to do it for Pocket Doc. Pocket Doc, Pocket Doc. Let's take the mushroom. We've come to the final segment of this show. This is where we take a look back at the week that was 10 years ago and beyond. And a little something we like to call Strong History. 10 years ago this week, Spider-Man 3 launched on the Xbox, PlayStation 2, GameCube, Xbox 360, PC, and many, many other consoles. Uh, This, of course, was the follow-up to the incredibly popular Spider-Man 2, an open-world Spider-Man game. Spider-Man 3, nowhere near as good. Just a lot more glitchy and the bad frame rate. And I will say the story was kind of cool because you got to fight the Kingpin inside of the Sony Spider-Man universe. That was the cool thing about it. You got to see these villains. And what would they be like in this movie universe? Uh, The Lizard was also in it. It was neat. It was neat. 
Not a good game, but the story was kind of neat. 12 years ago, way back in 2005, Forza Motorsport, the original, launched on the original Xbox. Little did we realize it would still be around 12 years later and be better than ever. You know, I, I, I think a lot of people looked at Forza Motorsport and, uh, you know, Project Gotham Racing, and I would have assumed that Project Gotham Racing would be the one that would be sticking around, but we haven't seen that series in a generation. So, 13 years ago, on the PlayStation 2 and Xbox, Red Dead Revolver was released. This was a game that was originally developed by Capcom. Yes, Capcom. And was then picked up by, uh, by Rockstar after uh, development was abandoned. And uh, it's a very different game from, you know, Red Dead Redemption. There are... Uh, there are dwarf clowns with bombs that run after you and explode. It is a really goofy game. Had cool multiplayer though, you could shoot acid bullets. I told you, it was a very different game. Uh, over on the Xbox 13 years ago, and the PlayStation 2, Van Helsing, based off the movie, was released. Uh, the only reason I mention this is because, uh, 13 years ago... Is that really possible? Yep, yeah, okay. Because it was in July, I want to say, that I won a copy of it. I was at a Halo tournament, and I did well enough that they actually gave me a copy of Van Helsing. I immediately took it to GameStop, flipped it, or is it EB Games? It was EB Games, I flipped it and picked up a copy of... Spider-Man 2. It all connects together, isn't that neat? Uh, 14 years ago, on the Game Boy Advance, Castlevania Aria of Sorrow was launched. Uh, this was the final Castlevania game launched in the Game Boy Advance, and easily the best. This is where they introduced the soul systems, where whenever you kill an enemy, you can collect their soul, which means you can use it as a power-up. It was so successful, they basically made a direct sequel to it in Dawn of Sorrow on the Nintendo DS, uh, which, me personally, might be my favorite Castlevania. Close second to Symphony of the Night. Close second. Also 14 years ago, EVE Online was launched on the PC, and little did they realize that when they launched a game like that, they would end up hiring world-class, um, you know, economists, and that it would basically be its own nation. It's hard to explain, but EVE Online is a giant space game that you can just go in there and become a, uh, a resource manager. You can just pretend like you're living a real space life. And the space battles that take place in that game actually affect real-world money. I'm talking like thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. It's pretty ridiculous. Also, 14 years ago on the original Xbox, Return to Castle Wolfenstein Tides of War was launched. Uh, this was one of my all-time favorite games of that generation. Not the single player, which was okay. I was more of a big fan of the multiplayer, uh, which everyone goes, Oh yeah, the multiplayer. They, they had that on the PC version as well, but no, they did not. They had very unique multiplayer on the original Xbox version. And it was class-based. You had somebody that could call in airstrikes, you had someone that was like a medic, and they basically had a version of capture the flag. One team would defend, one person, one team would capture. Ton of fun. I wish I could play that again, but what are you gonna do? Xbox Live is shut down for the original Xbox. A single tier. Also, 15 years ago on the GameCube, Resident Evil launched. It was an okay remake of a classic game. I know other people love the Resident Evil remake, but me? Nah. Not very impressed. They, 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 they seem to have uh, missed the point of why the original layout worked so well in that game. Uh, but the graphics were fantastic. Also, 15 years ago on the PC, The Elder Scrolls 3 Morrowind was launched. Um, I guess now that's my second, and that still might be my absolute favorite, um, you know, Elder Scrolls game. It's rainy, it's dark, it's swampy, it feels alien. Uh, you know, you can't really escape the, 
the the dread, you know, but it's there's a haunting beauty to that whole game. It's my favorite. I played it on the original Xbox. Uh, also, 15 years ago, the original Burnout was launched on the Xbox, which is relevant because 16 years ago, Burnout 2 Point of Impact was launched on the GameCube and the Xbox. Uh, the original Burnout was neat, but Burnout 2 is really where things started to click together. The racing just felt a lot more fun. It felt more dynamic. It was, it was scary. It was exhilarating. It was awesome. But Burnout 3 is obviously the masterpiece. But for some people, Burnout Paradise is the best. 17 years ago on the original PlayStation, here's a game I never heard of. Colony Wars 3 Red Sun. I knew about Colony Wars. I knew about Colony Wars 2, which were these uh, sort of like space simulations. You flew around as a ship and you, you it was just a really cool game. You know, super hard sci-fi. I didn't know they made a Colony Wars 3 and now I really want to check that out. So I'm going to go to eBay and try and get a copy. Also, 19 years ago, on the PC, Aliens vs. Predator was released, one of the all-time best PC games of all time, because you had a campaign where you played as a Marine, you had a campaign where you played as an alien, you had a campaign where you played as a Predator, and they all felt completely different. Also, it had some amazing multiplayer. Not as good as Alien vs. Predator 2 in terms of multiplayer, but man, that game, it was basically survival horror and an action game and like a weird... I don't even know what you'd call the alien campaign. I guess like a stealth game. It was a fantastic title though. Very different from the one that they released on the uh, Jaguar, which was also good. Also 18 years ago on the PlayStation, Bloody Roar 2 was released. This was a classic beat-em-up well, fighting game, really. But it was a button-mashing fighting game where uh, you would play as these people. They would fight each other. You know, it's like, it's like Tekken 3D Arena. And then once you get enough power, you can just turn into monsters. Not monsters, like full-blown animals. So they basically look like furries. But then you can just punch each other off of the stage. It was ridiculous. Imagine Dragon Ball Z if everybody turned into animals when they powered up. That's basically what it was. Uh, also 18 years ago, on the original play uh, PlayStation, Urguys, God Bless the Ring, a very weird fighting game that was released by Squaresoft back in the day. Uh, it was most notable for having the included playable characters Cloud, Sephiroth, and Tifa. And this is well before, you know, Square would just... <laughs> For lack of a better word, whore out those characters into so many other franchises. Also 18 years ago, there's a lot of stuff from 18 years ago, I'm not gonna lie. Street Fighter Alpha 3 was launched on the PlayStation. I remember buying this game. Wow, I really do. I remember the day I bought it and brought it home and played the crap out of it. Street Fighter Alpha 3 is probably my favorite Street Fighter. Um, in terms of, yeah, yeah, I guess it would have to be. It might be Street Fighter, yeah, Street Fighter Alpha 3. Because it had different isms, which are basically different ways that your characters function in terms of their, their superpower. So in one case, you could do the traditional super move. In another one, you would just activate, um, basically a echo of your action. So if you punch, you would also have another punch that would be echoed and another punch. So if you were throwing a fireball, it would do serious chip damage, uh, which is when someone blocks. It was awesome. Uh, on the Game Boy Color, 18 years ago, Super Mario Bros. Deluxe was released. Uh, this was a complete, from the ground up, remake of the original Super Mario Bros. from the NES on the Game Boy Color, but it also had new stages. It's maybe the best way to play the original Super Mario Brothers? For real. It's awesome. Also, 18 years ago, R4, Ridge Racer Type 4 was launched on the PlayStation. Uh, many people consider this their favorite racing game of all time. I don't really remember playing it at all, but I've always wanted to go back and check it out because Ridge Racer games hold up because they are not following real world, real world physics or graphics. They are in their own world. 
19 years ago on the PlayStation, Breath of the Fire. Breath of the Come on. That said, damn, Breath of the Wild is in my head. Breath of Fire 3 was launched on the PlayStation. Gran Turismo Part 1 was launched on the PlayStation, which back in the day blew my mind with its graphics. Uh, Saturn Panzer. <laughs> I read that wrong. Panzer Dragoon Saga was launched last Saturn, one of the most rare games, uh, hundreds of dollars to collect a copy of that game, an amazing JRPG featuring all of the Panzer Dragoon characters, uh, or not characters, the world. Also 19 years ago, uh, Clay Fighter Sculptor's Cut on the Nintendo 64 was released, another much sought after game that's worth hundreds of, if not thousands of dollars on the internet right now. And over in Japan, Super Famicom Wars was launched. Which, of course, if that sounds like Super Famicom Wars, that sounds like Advanced Wars, that's because it is. Uh, the way that Advanced Wars works in Japan is that it's the name of whatever the console is. So they had Famicom Wars, Super Famicom Wars, so Advanced Wars was talking about, you know, the Game Boy Advance. So it's funny that when they moved over to the DS, they still called it Advanced Wars here in the West. And lastly, 19 years ago... Einhander was launched on the PlayStation, another Squaresoft game, except this is a shooter, and I always got the names confused. Einhander, Einhander, or no, it's Urgeis and Einhander, and they were released a year apart. They are both really weird games for Square to make at the time, because they mostly made JRPGs, fighting game, and a shooter. Just bizarre. And by shooter, I mean like side-scrolling shooter. Like, I don't mean first person. 20 years ago on the PlayStation, Wild Arms was launched, a awesome JRPG. A lot of people love the intro for its cool animation, and there's this dude whistling, because it's kind of like a western vibe. Funny story though, over in Japan, they had actual lyrics to that song with someone singing over it, because they didn't have a vocalist here in America. Someone just started whistling, but that whistling has held the test of time. It's way better than the Japanese original. Also 20 years ago, War Gods was launched on Nintendo 64. It sucked. It was horrible. I don't know why uh, Nintendo decided to release that. Well, no, it wasn't Nintendo. It was, it was Midway. Whatever. 22 years ago on the PC, Full Throttle was launched. Of course, that just recently got a remaster. Full Throttle, back in the day, one of my all-time favorite games. I loved playing that game and using cheat codes so I could get the chainsaw. <laughs> While uh, fighting people. In case you don't know, it was an adventure game uh, from LucasArts that um, basically was around motorcycles. It was about motorcycles and, and trying to save a Harley Davidson type company. Uh, very strange game. Uh, very difficult in some points, like a classic adventure game where you're trying to merge uh, certain objects together. But there were just so many cool little touches, like you could do the whole thing with the knife in between the fingers when you were at a bar. It was goofy. And you could just stab your hand intentionally and just watch the blood. That's what I did. Also, 22 years ago, The Ultimate Doom was launched. Apparently it wasn't The Ultimate Doom because we still have more coming out to this day. And also 22 years ago, Kirby's Dreamland 2, my personal favorite Kirby game of all time. There's a point in it where you have to fight the sun and the moon. How cool is that? Also 23 years ago, on the 3DO, because we never talk about the 3DO, Family Feud, based off the game show, was launched with full motion video, you can only imagine how well that holds up, and John Madden Football was launched on the 3DO. This was considered a way for them to prepare to work on other formats, including the PlayStation. It didn't turn out well on the 3DO, and sadly, the original Madden games on PlayStation weren't that good either. So, what are you gonna do? 25 years ago, on the Super Nintendo, Mario Paint was released. And, uh, just a classic game. Just lets you create your own things, create music, create uh, animation. A lot of artists that are in the field today, they got their start 
using Mario Paint, and how cool is that? Uh, over on the PC 25 years ago, 25 years ago, this is the 25th anniversary of Wolfenstein 3D. Not the original first-person shooter, but my god, did it perfect it. Running around, killing Nazis with your chain guns. Good times. Eh, I don't know if they actually had a chain gun in that one. Whatever. Also 25 years ago, in Japan, Todd's Adventures in Slime World was launched. This is a game that I never get to talk about because they, they don't have the exact date of when it was released in America, but this was an incredibly fun game. Uh, you basically went around killing slimes and trying not to get covered in slime. There's this amazing multiplayer mode where you have this gigantic area that you can run around in split screen and try and kill each other. It's stupid fun. Todd's Adventures in Slime World. Awesome game. Also available on the links, I guess. 37 years ago, and finally 37 years ago, Mystery House was launched. If you've never heard of Mystery House, it was released in 1980, it was Sierra's first computer game, and it was only sold in four stores in LA County. From humble beginnings, Sierra's first game, Mystery House, 37 years ago. But that's gonna have to do it for Strong History! Good show. If you can't tell, my my throat is a little raspy this week, and I'm a little under the weather, but I think we made it through there. I didn't want to start off the show by mentioning I was under the weather, because if I did that, people might stop listening. <laughs> but now is the time to close up the show. Remember, you can go to youtube.com slash video games are dumb. You can check out my episode of Worth It, all about Persona 5, Ukulele, The Silver Case, Outlast 2, Tons of reviews went up last week, and I'm going to have one for Mario Kart 8 later this week, so please check that out. Uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, you can follow me at Dr. Crychop. That's at Dr. Crychop. You can email the show, pressurecast at gmail.com, call or text 954-947-7377, or tweet at VGA Dumb. All of those links are available uh, in the description below of this YouTube page or podcast app. But yes, uh, my throat is dying. Right now, I'm going to I'm going to end the show because it's 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 my throat is over. But the pressure cast is not. Because the pressure cast never ends. Because the pressure cast is forever. See you guys. <laughs>